Please note, if you're listening to this, you must be 18 years of age or older. This podcast contains adult themes and may include descriptions that listeners could find offensive. Thank you. That even an apocalypse can be made to seem part of the ordinary horizon of expectation constitutes an unparalleled violence that is being done to our sense of reality, to our humanity. Susan Sontag. Welcome to the Kinky Nerdy Polly Podcast. This is episode 10. Hello, this is G. I'm from an indeterminate time, either in the past, present, or future. I'm here to tell you that in this episode we will be discussing the story and themes of Horizon Zero Dawn, and we will be spoiling the ending of the game. If you wish to play or read the story of Horizon Zero Dawn before starting this episode, I suggest you do so now. Well, here we are, episode 10. Yes. What's our topic today, G? Well, Em, our topic today is Horizon Zero Dawn. Ooh, I just got chills with you saying it like that. Horizon Zero Dawn. Horizon Zero Dawn. All right. That was fun. (laughs) Okay. Yes. So for our listeners who might not know what Horizon Zero Dawn is, what is Horizon Zero Dawn, M? Well, gee, gee, let me tell you. Mm. (laughs) Horizon Zero Dawn is a third person action adventure game in a post-apocalyptic setting. Okay. So you want to elaborate on that? Because we we I well I watched G play through this game. Yes. So that's my my primary experience, and I've played through a little bit of it myself as well. Yes. So G, go ahead elaborate a little bit more. So this is a video game. I guess for our listeners who might not be into video games, so third person video game means literally the camera is just behind the character, usually behind and above a little bit. And it's usually fairly easy to manipulate the camera with the controls. Action adventure sort of refers to the style of gameplay. I think it's fair to say that it's kind of similar sort of in the lines of Assassin's Creed. A little bit. Without so much the focus on combat. It also sort of has, because of the very open world kind of feel to it, it also has a little bit of a Skyrim kind of feel. Yes. It has a very sort of open world feel. The the developers of the game, Insom- uh, no, not Insomniac, Corella Games, are the people who also made the Killzone games, if I remember correctly. For our listeners, you might be interested in that. And the post-apocalyptic setting literally just refers to what the game is set in. And in this case, it is post-apocalyptic. It happens after the apocalypse. And this is a very, I'd say it's a sort of brighter a sort of more optimistic post-apocalypse than most post-apocalyptic settings. Absolutely, there's sort of this... Uh, it's not, you know, it's not like Mad Max where, like, the whole right. world has just gone to yes. hell and we're just living, living in the remnants of this hell. It is a game where human civilization has started to sort of rebuild itself. Reflourish. There's greenery, unlike a lot of other right. post-apocalyptic... There's greenery and there's lots of wildlife and animals yeah. and... It's a very pretty game. Yes, like, gorgeous. It is a game that does a good job of presenting the world. It's very pretty to look at. 
I believe it's a PS4 exclusive. Yes, so it is PlayStation 4 exclusive. So for those who can play it, have a PS4. If you know someone who has a PS4, definitely check it out. And they've done a very good job of harnessing the PS4's power to make this game look very pretty. In fact, I remember seeing a a GIF, which I'll try to find and add to the show notes, of how the camera in Horizon Zero Dawn works and how it renders the world as you move the camera around. Uh, Because obviously it does not render the entirety of of the world at once. It just renders what's in the cone of view of the camera and a little bit past it. So as you turn the camera, it will just keep on rendering and de-rendering as needed. So this game has a female protagonist. Yes. Aloy is her name. I'd actually like you to talk a little bit about sort of Aloy's introduction, uh, because I feel like I missed that first cinematic. I don't think I've actually watched it of her like being found. Because you remember like when I started playing, just kind of skipped over that. I don't remember. I don't think there was much that you missed. Okay. But like for me, it was just, I started playing the game. It was just this girl with Rost. Uh, was, was she like a baby? No, she oh, was okay. already like a child. Yeah, so so there's baby Aloy, and this is sort of the opening scene, and within the first 15 minutes, you get the first kind of LGBT reference. Okay. Actually, within these, the first minutes of the game, right, which is pretty cool. And so obviously, you know, female protagonist, so there's a lot of feminist mm-hmm. kind of, you know, theory behind it, and also LGBT representation, and it starts out with her as a baby. Rost is sort of her father. Yes. And... He has been given this child because the kind of leaders of her tribe were all like these matriarchs. Yes. They found her in the mountain. Mm -hmm. Uh, She doesn't have a mother. Yes. So they give her to Rost because Rost is an outcast and... But he seems to be a somewhat respected outcast. He's a respected outcast. And so basically he's not allowed into like the actual where the tribe is actually kind of living and they, you know, so he has to stay kind of on the outside but they decide that, well, first of all, because Aloy's a baby and has no mother, and mothers are deeply respected in their culture, yeah. um, she has to also be outcast because she's kind of considered almost like impure or unholy, according to their, if we're kind of drawing these lines. From what I remember later on in the game, there was sort of a debate about whether like she was either like a chosen one or more of like an antichrist figure right so there's like this antichrist right so there's sort of like this impure so they decide that she's got to be an outcast but they obviously don't want to just leave a baby to die Mm -hmm. so they give her to rost to take care of her and he actually in the beginning of the game there's a very beautiful cinematic where he names her and he actually gets a blessing from one of the matriarchs even though she's not really supposed to be giving her blessing because oh, it's like awful. You shouldn't, you know, bless this child's birth and our naming. And so he gives her the name Aloy. Yes. So that's the beginning. There's a couple things I want to unpack here. One, it is nice to see a, a female protagonist in a video game. Oftentimes in video games, it is a default male protagonist, or you're given the choice between like a male and female protagonist, which usually means the protagonist has less character to them. So it's very rare to have a sort of solidly female protagonist, and that's your only choice. Yeah, a solidly female protagonist who, throughout the story too, develops in a way that is not reliant on male figures. And also not reliant on the male gaze. Right, yes. Uh, Aloy is not sexualized. I mean, in my opinion, she's not sexualized throughout this Not in the same way that other people... So, for example, I'm trying to think of, like, other... um, 
female protagonists that are a little bit sexualized. Lara Croft? Like Lara Croft. That was immediately, like, what I was thinking. She's very sexualized. Um, Whereas Aloy, yes, she's beautiful. Like, she has, you know, gorgeous red hair. She's got a very cool aesthetic. I love it. Her body is not being shown in a way that is just catering towards male gaze. I mean, she she has good features. Yes. But she's not wearing, like, a tank top and booty shorts. Right. And I don't remember there being a point where the camera just kind of lingers on her. Right. Like, on her uh, breasts or on her ass. Mm -hmm. Which, you know, I love Mass Effect, but there are definitely times where the camera just sort of lingers on female characters' assets, so to speak. Right. So it's nice to have this female protagonist who's not sort of overly sexualized. It's also interesting to sort of see a, a matriarchy culture. Yeah, it's really cool. Uh, which is something you don't see a whole lot in science fiction, with with exceptions. Like, you know, there's the trope of sort of, like, beautiful Amazonian aliens. Well, uh, Wonder Woman, didn't she come from a very matriarchal society? Yes. If I remember correctly. But, but these are all, like, sort of exceptions. Sure, like, right. For the most part, when, when people imagine fictional societies, they sort of imagine it being somewhat similar to her own and that there are... It's either patriarchy or meritocracy that just so happens to have men as having the most merit. Uh, So it's interesting to sort of see that power difference in that, you know, women are in charge and women are seen as the authority figures. That being said, and I did I didn't put this in the notes because I actually didn't think about it until right now. But I want your opinion on this because women are like very well respected. Yes. But you still have these moments where at least towards Aloy. Mm-hmm. Granted, this is before she's kind of accepted into the tribe later. Yeah, but people do kind of dismiss her as like a girl, as like girl, but saying it in kind of like a not a derogatory way, but yeah. it, you know, definitely when it's like the male figures kind of saying it to her, kind of using that expression of girl. I don't really remember that. Okay, there's sort of that one bully character. Yes, at the beginning, but I feel like a lot of the animosity was just. Because she's an outcast. She's an outcast. Right. I'd have to like either rewatch or replay that section to sort of get a better grasp on what sort of the dynamics were in that scene. But there's the matriarchy. There's also this this religion that the that Aloy's people have. I'm forgetting the name of her people. Yeah, so there are multiple different tribes throughout the throughout the game. Yeah. And uh, give me one second. So the tribe that Aloy comes from are the Nora. So the Nora, yeah, they're matriarchal, and they, they do have, so there's different tribes, and they each have kind of like their own different philosophies or religions. Yeah, so there's the Nora, who are sort of a matriarchal society. They believe in sort of the mountain mother, I think. All mother, yeah. All, yeah, all mother uh, is sort of their goddess and progenitor of mm-hmm. the of the Nora. There's the Karja, yep. who are sun worshippers. And are actually sort of in the process of a civil war. And then there's the Banuk, who are sort of people who are robot animists, I think is the best way to describe them. They believe that the robots are gods. Yeah. So I guess. There's also the Asaram. Yeah, the Asaram are tinkers. But (laughs) I feel like we're kind of gloss. Yeah, just to. Let our audience know, there's a lot of robots in this game. (laughs) Like a ton of robots, which is amazing. Not only robots, they're robot dinosaurs. Yes. (laughs) So before we get too wrapped up, there are a lot of cool robot dinosaurs in this game, and you have to fight a lot of them. Which brings me to when I first played this game. Yes. 
first of all, I love robots and robot dinosaurs even cooler, right? Yeah. But I'm not very good at this particular style of game. And I was playing through on like normal mode. And there's also like an easy mode and then there's also a story mode. Yes. But I was playing through on normal mode and I died a lot. And you also played on normal, right? Yes. Yes. So it is a pretty challenging game. I think more challenging for me than like the average person. But, you know, that being said, there's even like a hard and like an very like an even harder legendary level, or legendary or something yeah so i think i read an article about how you get a lot more from playing on a harder difficulty because it forces you to have to really use kind of everything in that open world whereas just going through on like story or easy mode you don't really need to fight everything yeah obviously so mm-hmm. you actually get to see a lot more of the different kinds of robots and di- and robot dinosaurs yeah, I mean, there's some dino- there's some robot dinosaurs that do not show up if you just play the right. main story mission. You have to go out and sort of find them. I think the uh, the basically the robot bison don't show up unless you go out and find them, and the robot giant moles don't show up unless you go out and find them. Oh, those moles! Jesus Christ. Anyway, sorry, I was just having flashbacks no, to fine. incredibly hard fights with those moles. Uh, but going back to the religion bit. Yeah. Uh, so you know these these various cultures have different religions. I don't actually remember what the Osram really. The Osram are kind of like atheists. I feel like they just um, kind of like tinker and build stuff. Let me look it up because I'm curious now. Give me one second. So the Osram. Let's see if they have they have politics, red raids, post liberation, culture. Yeah, they have no organized religion. Yeah. So they don't wear any form of face paint. They have no organized religion and. They're more like practical rather than inspirational. So like yeah. they, you they're know, very you said, pragmatic, very pragmatic, and they place a high value on independence, freedom of expression, and making arguments. So they do have a belief system, but it's not a religion. It's more just like an a uh, moralism kind of thing. So there's this interesting tension throughout the game where Aloy is sort of thrust into the religion and spirituality of her people. And she does try, she does use it to her advantage. However, at least to me, it's very clear that she does not believe herself, uh, which is a very sort of interesting take of trying to sort of navigate that path of these are my people and I'm trying to help them. But part of the way that I can help them is by having to deal with this part of my culture that I don't like and don't believe in. I think this is actually something that happens in real life as well. And we, especially when it's our people and we want to have a good relationship with them, but we don't share the same beliefs, we might use their terminology for things. So like Aloy often will say, you know, the all mother something, Mm. something, but she's, she might not really believe it, but she's trying to communicate these things by using their language. And that's something that I found when I came out to my grandparents they're very Christian. Yes. So one of the things that I did was I used Christian terminology when I came out to them so that way I could try to relate to them. So I feel like this is not an uncommon strategy yeah. that people will use when they want to keep a good relationship with people, but they have different religious beliefs because religion, it can go deep in a person. Yes. It can go very deep. And I think Aloy is sensitive to that. Yeah, she is. But it also seems very clear to me that she does not believe herself. She has... She sort of has an understanding that this technology is technology. It's not a divine gift or presence. Mm-hmm. 
but you know she has to sort of navigate there like there's that point where she's trying to get into the door to the vault door and like the vault door says you know registry is corrupted and she's like i need to i need to find a registry whatever a registry is and then the priestess comes up is like oh the door spoke of corruption and obviously you must be the one to cleanse the corruption and she's like "Mm, i don't think that's what it means but you know if it helps me on my quest i'm going to go along with it right i also feel like there's a really between rost and aloy there's sort of this even though rost rost does kind of have the same religion but i think that he uses it in a very pragmatic way as well with aloy because he's like raising her in the wilderness and he has to teach her all of these things and one of the quotes that ross says to aloy that i feel like kind of speaks to how beliefs can run deep and that they don't have to necessarily be religious beliefs right Mm -hmm. he says to aloy right before she's trying to get approval of the tribe The strength to stand alone is the strength to make a stand, to serve a purpose greater than yourself. And I think that this really clicks with Aloy, because even if that purpose greater than herself is not this goddess or Mm -hmm. not this religion, that it's community or it's like the future of humanity. So So speaking of Ross, uh do you want to talk about, do you want to talk about Daddy Ross? Oh, I want to talk about Daddy Ross. Well, okay. So for our listeners, when I was playing through this, you know, the first time, and also watching other people play through it. The bit where, you know, Aloy's kind of growing up, obviously, so she's a young girl. But Ross is a very authoritarian, very assertive daddy figure, father figure, and I kind of totally fetishize him. And I'm just like, hey, oh, I want a daddy Ross. Um, <laughs> you know, the way he's like, come, Aloy. And it's just uh, really, really makes me feel like he would be a great daddy dom. Uh, so uh, there's a little bit of a fetish for me there so it might be it might be helpful for our listeners to explain what daddy dom means yeah i guess that would be good to explain so daddy dominant right so it's somebody who kind of has these fatherly caring nurturing but yet you know like assertive and authoritarian kind of traits but you know and then also dominant so these might you know, happen in the little community, we might see a lot of daddy doms, but not, it's not exclusive to the little community. Okay. Littles being people who... Playfully regress? P- playfully regress, yes. So yes. they're... I was trying to think of an easy way to explain to that. To explain that, yes. Or they might just enjoy doing things that are like what little kids would do. So they yes. might not actually playfully regress, but they might just enjoy doing coloring yeah. or whatever. Yeah. So we often see daddy doms in that community, but not just in that community. They're also in the leather community as well. Um, in fact, I forgot to mention that in our leather episode, but like really like daddies, or did I mention that about like daddies? You did not mention of, about daddies. Uh, daddies kind of come from leather in yeah. a way. Yeah. Because I just recently did my first pass edit on that. Oh, so. shoot. Well, daddies are also definitely integrated into the leather community. So yeah. lots of different kinds of daddies. Yeah. I, I feel like it is, it is sort of a style of dominance, if that makes sense, much like if you take on the title of master, you are signifying that you're into a certain kind of dominance with with very sort of formal relationships. While I feel like a daddy dominant, that is more of a style where it's like, I I am in charge, but I one of my purposes is to also mentor and nourish, if right. that makes sense. And of course, there's a lot of overlap too. So there's certainly masters who are very daddy domish or 
motherly if you're in I also want to say, yeah, for our listeners too, this can also work totally for like mother figures kind of in the kink community or any other gendered parent top if you want. Hey, we should totally say the parent top. That doesn't work. No, I lied. That doesn't have a ring to it. No. Why did I think that that was going to be cute? I guess you're thinking about the parent trap. Oh, that's totally what it was. Well, that doesn't work. Yeah. Um, Parents, primal parents. I don't know. I'm trying to think of something that works like daddy dom. Anyway. I'm sorry. I think you (laughs) peaked at spectrum of sexual swagger. It's all downhill from here. Wait, when did I say that? I believe in our needs and wants episode. Oh, really? Yeah. Sexual swagger. Yeah. When I, I was, said that. When I was trying to like come up with like levels of swinginess. Oh, yes. Sexual swagger. Oh, man. I think you peaked. I peaked. Yeah. That's it. Well, in any case, daddy doms can be any gender. They don't even have to be, call themselves daddies. And there is, of course, overlap. You know, you can be a master and be a daddy, or you can be a mistress and be a mommy. But yes, you're right that normally people who are in, like, will take on these certain titles yes. do have certain styles. Yes. And the the daddy ones are a little bit more into the nurturing, caring yeah. kind of aspects. Not to say that that's not there in an MS dynamic, because it absolutely can be. It can be. I feel like it just sort of... Isn't maybe the focus... Maybe it's about, like, what's the focus? Yes. Well, that was a long tangent. It was a long tangent, but I think it was worth it. And I guess the main thing that we were trying to say is that, that Daddy Rost is hot. That was <laughs> that was what I was saying. Daddy Rost is hot. And, um, yeah. So, getting back to Horizon Zero Dawn. So, another thing I think we want to touch upon is Aloy's sexual and romantic identity. Yes. Absolutely. So throughout the game, Aloy gets hit on by a lot of people. Of all genders. Of all genders. And for the most part, she's kind of like, I'm busy right now. (laughs) And no. (laughs) Uh, I feel like those are her two main answers of like, I'm busy trying to save the world. And no. Yeah, absolutely. And possibly a combination of the two. I'm busy. And even if I weren't, no. I certainly read her as being arrow ace aromantic and asexual because even when she's she's being flirted with by girls and guys and whoever it doesn't matter their gender she's just like i'm really not into that and then also even when they just ask her out on a nice date or they might say something that's a little bit romantic she's kind of just like i don't care about that i know there's a question of sort of like the aceness is pretty clearly ingrained in her but i think there's a question like if the arrow is like part of her socialization because you know she was an outcast for most of her life or if that's just how she naturally is yeah and there is a little bit i think in a lot of popular media you know asexuals or aromantics are often portrayed as being like the didn't socialize oh no i was gonna say like that the you know outcast or doesn't socialize the same way but you know, I don't think that her being an outcast necessarily made her ace or arrow, but it might have, if she was likely to be ace or arrow, then those conditions would have, like, definitely helped to enforce it. Enforce it Exactly. Yeah. Because she didn't, she didn't grow up in the tribe seeing, you know, those kinds of romantic or sexual kind of interactions that other people would have been having growing up. Yeah. In fact, speaking of her interactions with the tribe, I think there's an interesting little dynamic going on of there is the public-facing norm versus the reality of the situation. So the public-facing norm is that people of the tribe do not speak to outcasts. And 
you know, you can be outcast for it seems like a lot of things. There's there's a high number of outcasts in the Nora tribe. And outcast is not necessarily like for life. It can be like for a year or for whatever the elders determine is the correct amount of time. So there's that public facing Nora's like the tribe does not speak to outcasts. However, they're still merchants as so like, well, if you got money, <laughs> right. I will I'll trade with you and I'll talk with you. Or there's that old woman in the beginning of the game who does not speak to you, she just happens to pray to the world while you're standing nearby. And the thing she prays for is like, it would be great if the All-Mother would provide me with some food. And you go, get her you for get some food. food, and you get, bring it to her. And he's like, I am thankful to the All-Mother for this food. Yeah, so she's, not, she's kind of getting around it, like yes. this little loophole. And there is also that one kid that you help out early on in the game who does try to talk to you and he's kind of yeah. reprimanded for that. But so there are some exceptions, of course. Yes. So, I mean, you know, people will do what they want to do. One last LGBT representation thing. Yes. So we talked a little bit about lots of people flirting with whoever. Uh, well, with Aloy, at least. And there's a couple of LGBT references. But there's also a trans, there's also specifically a trans guy character. And his name is Geneva. Um, or Geneva, I'm sorry if I'm pronouncing it incorrectly. So he doesn't come out and say that he's trans, but he is part of the Karja military. military. So so Geneva is AFAB, assigned female at birth. However, whenever you talk to Geneva, he will use male pronouns and say that he is a soldier of the Karja military. Which you have to be male. So in Aloy calls him sister at one point i think yes and he's like i am not your sister you know i i am a man women cannot be a part of the carja military so obviously they do not have the same language that we do because it's set in a post-apocalypse so they don't have like the same language for these concepts but it's very obvious that this person has decided that they are going to be male and probably has had to overcome some significant hurdles to become the commander of this military outpost. And also, uh, one of the commentaries that I've read on his character is that part of him getting involved in the military is that it was a way to express his malehood, and it's kind of unfortunate that he had to resort to these violent male stereotypes just to be able to live out his life as a man. Um, So we see some social commentary, because, you know, definitely in the trans guy community and trans male community... There are trans men who will resort to or give in to these male stereotypes that enforce violence and toxic masculinity. Yeah. Now, that being said, Geneva's not a a horrible character. No, Uh, I mean, you can get Geneva as an ally in your final boss battle, uh, which I don't think I got, so I must have missed out on that particular quest marker. Not that those people are particularly helpful in the final battle anyway, but... It was really fun watching you play through that, too. Oh. I I remember I started, like, I was going through the battle, and they were like, oh, there's a timer. I was like, oh, there's a timer. (laughs) Yeah, that was fun, because you didn't realize that, and I was watching you play, and I was just like, hey, that says you have nine minutes left. Does that mean you have nine minutes left to complete this, and then you're toast? (laughs) Yes, that is what that means. So I think... Uh, we're going to go a bit more into spoiler territory and talk about the story of Horizon Zero Dawn and the background of Horizon Zero Dawn. And also the conversation system, like the choices-based kind of system. Yeah, so there's a conversation system. It's very limited. 
there's not many times where you get to make a conversational choice. But the three sort of conversation choices are sort of intellectual, caring, and mean, I feel like would be the three ways to characterize those choices, which are represented by a brain, a heart, and a fist. Now, uh, since M was watching me (laughs) play this game, there would be points where I would kind of torture M by like, Oh, I wonder if I should be mean to this person right now. Don't be should, mean. Should I be mean to this guy who betrayed me and got all my friends killed because his family was being held hostage? Yeah, and I that was that was quite torture. I mean, I would just he would just G would hover over. Yeah, I the would, mean I would, choice, and I would just be like gasping. I would be I would be like closing my eyes. Shielding my face, I was like, don't pick that one. Well, that's because I'm I'm an emotional sadist as well as a physical sadist. <laughs> I think I've turned you on to the emotional sadism. I do want to take just a little bit of credit <laughs> for that. Okay. Just like this much. Just, just that much? Yeah. Just just a bit? Just a tiny, teeny bit okay. of credit for that. So this is, you know, it's not that in-depth of a conversation system. It's not like Mass Effect where oh, God. you've got all these branching choices. Right. But, you know, it is it is nice to be able to sort of impart a little bit of character to your version of Aloy. I tend to go with the intelligent Aloy, who is kind of sassy. Sassy Aloy. Yeah, I, have, of course, went with more emotional Aloy. Mm-hmm. But occasionally I would go with the intellectual Aloy. So throughout this game, you're sort of trying to figure out, is the player is trying to figure out what happened. Because obviously there's this apocalyptic event that happened that reset humanity at some point. You know, you see ruins of cities, you see all this fabulous technology that people really don't have access to anymore, and you also see these robot dinosaurs wandering around. So obviously, like, somebody made this stuff, and you're trying to sort of piece together what happened, and Aloy sort of starts trying to piece it together too, because part of her journey is discovering, you know, who is trying to sort of stop her from her quest and, you know, what sort of the forces are behind that. So as you go throughout the game, you sort of start visiting these sites, which will sort of have these holographic messages that will play, which sort of give you some idea of like what happened in the backstory. And I think this is a pretty cool way to fill you in on backstory. I also liked it because it was kind of like a slow burn, so to speak, like you don't get everything at once. You're really trying to puzzle together the story, and, piece and, together the and story. And there's some elements that you can puzzle beforehand because you will hear... So there's like one point where I stopped and basically listened to like a eight-minute mythology story that one of the storytellers was telling to the kids in this in this village. So I kind of get right, start grasping that. like what's going on here because there's like there's this legend of the all mother and the all mother was fighting the metal devil. Right. And you know, I'm trying to sort of like this is a mythology that obviously has some sort of basis in fact because you can see the remnants of a giant metal machine in the mountains. So like you can see this. So it's like, oh, there's the metal devil. <laughs> What is the Metal Devil? Right. So you go on the story and you sort of start sort of piecing together what happened. And what happens is you you discover that there is essentially, you know, there's this kind of flourishing human civilization. Uh, I mean, they, they're having some trouble, like they had some troubles with like global warming and stuff. But for the most part, it seemed like 
maybe not like completely on lockdown, but like technology was still advancing. It seemed like corporations had more power than a lot of governments. Like it seemed like some corporations just like held territory and would fight each other for territory. But it still seemed like there are some countries that were still sort of players in the field. U.S. Robot Command is, is specifically referenced as sort of you you go to U.S. Robot Command. So you know that the area you're playing is, is used to be part of the United States. Yeah, and I think like a couple times we get some clues into what states and... Yeah, my my understanding is it's uh, like somewhere in like the the Four Corners area, like uh, where Colorado, Utah, and those other two states meet. I'm sure we're going to get... I, you know, we're terrible at, at geography. Yeah. A- actually, everyone is terrible at geography. I've determined that. <laughs> But that Four Corners area, you know what yeah, I'm talking I, about. Yeah, sure. <laughs> those four places. Uh, Isn't those... Nevada involved? I think so. I don't know. All right. We're terrible. This is bad. You know, we're on a podcast. We can edit this part out. No, I think we should keep it in. People should know how ignorant we are of geography. <sighs> All right. Display because my... we need to do better. That's what this is telling me. <laughs> you need to do better? I need to. Look, I forgot Nebraska existed the other day entirely okay then i found out that they were apparently under a flood from all of the snow melting all at once okay <laughs> this actually happened just right. recently like okay. four feet of snow yeah uh, yeah that's a lot of snow like sixty thousand people have been evacuated oh i had not heard anything about this yeah you wouldn't the only reason i know about it is because x has a friend from there who was saying that sixty thousand people in nebraska just got evacuated <laughs> So uh, that's how I remembered that Nebraska is actually a state. I mean, I feel like if I went down like a list and I was just like writing them out, I could like you could list, figure it out. I could list all the states, but you couldn't fill in the map. I could probably fill in a majority of the map. Okay. Obviously, North Dakota is above South Dakota. Oh, wow! Amazing job there, genius. Uh, California is okay. California. Well, come on, yeah. easy peasy. And, you know, once you, you know, you can start sort of puzzling things together. But, you know, I don't just, like, look at empty map and go, like, yes, that is exactly where Maine is. Oh, but Maine is easy. I always get Maine and New Hampshire confused. Maine is the, it's the most tip. Okay. Up there. On oh, the, I'm, I'm pointing not... to the an invisible map yes. right now, just because this... our listeners can't see me pointing to this invisible map. <laughs> and I'm, like, pointing at where Maine is okay. in the sky. In the air. Anyway. So you sort of start puzzling together. And I think I called it pretty early about what happened. Uh, do you remember this? I do. So you find out that there's essentially this robot apocalypse that starts happening. There is this company that makes military robots. And they sold them to both sides of conflict. So, you know, there are a lot of these robots around. And these robots were self-sustaining, able to replicate themselves. And could subsist on biological matter, i.e. plants and animals. So once somebody put together this amazing defense and offensive system... These are the pharaoh uh, robots? Yeah, the pharaoh robots, where possibly nothing could go wrong. Something went wrong, and these robots essentially started to act autonomously, refusing to follow commands, and would just eat everything... And just keep on replicating themselves. And these swarms, like they don't, they're not armies anymore. They're literally swarms that are stripping the earth bare. And, you know, you find out about, I found out about that. I was like, 
how do you fight that? I mean, they're like, right. It's one thing to, it's like one thing to sort of posit like how humanity could fight like a robot apocalypse where like the robots are just manufacturing themselves over and over again. Like you can kind of posit like way, like, you know, EMPs, nuclear missiles, like you can kind of think of ways like you might be able to fight that. But if you're talking about self-replicating robots that can eat organic matter, it's like, what can you do? And I was like, I posited pretty early on. I was like, I'm not sure if humanity actually won this fight. Right. And I think I had a very similar inclination as well. I wasn't quite sure how... (laughs) Right, like exactly what... Yeah, I wasn't quite sure like how humanity survived this fight, but I was like, I'm pretty sure humanity did not win it. (laughs) Right. And can we talk about one of the key players in this fight? Yeah. Elizabeth. Elizabeth. Yeah, Elizabeth. She's another very strong female character in this game. Of course, you don't play her because you play as Aloy. But Aloy and Elizabeth are very linked. I mean, we've we've already said we're, we're going to have spoiler warning at the beginning okay. of the episode, and we've already said we're going deeper into spoiler territory. Right, so. that's true. Yeah, so basically... It is revealed towards the end of the game that Aloy is a clone of Elizabeth. Right, yes. Uh, who Elizabeth programmed this AI, whom she called Gaia. Yes. And basically her plan... So basically, she and Ted Farrow, who's the guy who ran the robots company that made the military robots, sort of were partners for a little while. She was kind of like the Wozniak to his jobs, if that metaphor makes sense. They have a split when Farrow sort of starts becoming even more corporate. And, you know, she sort of starts her own company, but he's kind of barraging her with lawsuits. And also, like, Elizabeth's main goal is sustainability. Yeah. It's green. It's environmental. Yeah. She's trying to, like, use robots and technology to try to sustain the planet, while Pharaoh is sort of pivoting towards the military-industrial complex. So once things start going wrong for Pharaoh, and it's past the point where he can figure out a solution, he calls in Elizabeth. And basically, Elizabeth looks at the data, and she goes, humanity is fucked. Yeah. And she literally just like takes the data, analyzes it. The next time she calls Pharaoh, is like, I'm going to US Robot Command right now. There's two ways this can go. One is that you use your money in order to fund my project in order to save humanity. Or two, I'm going to tell them what you did and they're going to kill you. Right. Yeah, so she's she has a plan. Yeah, so and it's not a it's not a uh comforting plan yeah basically everybody so you hear about this plan a lot before you get the details of the plan and basically everybody is horrified by this plan and you're trying to sort of figure out what this plan is as the game goes on and i think it does leave you like wondering a little bit like oh my god what is elizabeth planning yeah uh you know is this really you know gonna be terrible but actually it's it's a pretty good plan for this situation because there's There's no other alternative. There really isn't. So the plan is essentially, it it comes in a couple phases. One, there is the the propaganda phase, which is we're going to arm every single citizen we have to try to fight these robots. We're going to have sort of special ops units to try to support these militias. But essentially, we are going to throw bodies at these swarms, hopefully to slow them down. Basically to buy time, Uh, to stall. And the thing they say to everybody is, we need time in order to complete Horizon Zero Dawn. And 
this is the weapon, this is the super weapon we'll need to defeat these robots. So everybody sort of buys into this propaganda. You have essentially civilians throwing themselves at these robots. And it, let's also say, like, it's Pharaoh that is in charge of this propaganda, pretty much. Is it Pharaoh? Yeah. I thought I thought it was like U.S. Robot Command that the general in charge of U.S. Robot Command placed oh, that him? message. Yeah. Oh, okay. I got like, him confused with Pharaoh. Of like... I accept full responsibility right. for what I'm doing. Yes, yes, yes. Because Pharaoh is not the person to accept responsibility. That's right. Yes, it's, you're right. I had gotten them confused. So that's the first part of the plan. We need to buy time for Horizon Zero Dawn. And Zero Dawn is a super weapon we'll use to defeat the right. Pharaoh robots. Which is not a lie. Exactly. Uh, so then there's the second part of the plan, which is the Zero Dawn project. Basically, specialists are gathered from around the world and brought to these various sites. They are put through the Zero Dawn, essentially, orientation program. And they it's basically explained as, like, we cannot defeat these robots. What we can do is ensure the survival of humanity. So we're going to create an AI. We're going to give that AI the tools to rebuild the world. And eventually that AI will be able to deactivate all the feral robots just through brute force hacking. But we have about 16 months left before the collapse of the atmosphere, <laughs> where no life, with the exception yeah. of maybe anaerobic bacteria, will be able to survive on the planet. And it's going to take about a thousand years for this AI to crack the code in order to deactivate these robots. So we're not going to survive this. What we can do is give the AI the tools it needs to terraform the planet and rebuild life and rebuild human civilization. And that's what we're going to do. And there's a couple of interesting things that happen during this orientation process. For one thing, everybody who's told about this is given three options. One is you can work for the project. Secondly, you can be detained for the rest of the time that Zero Dawn is going to happen, but eventually you're going to die because humanity is going to die. Or third, you can opt for euthanasia. There's like a orientate, like the psychologists who right, are writing they have the like orientation yep. are like given like guidelines to how to... Yeah, like um, if they choose a certain option. So basically, I like this because, well, first of all, I like the choices. Yes. Because I think, yes, I, there are, they are kind of like robbing these people of their will in a little bit of a way. But at the same time, these, these options are pretty good options. You're either going to work for us, and, and it is, you know, stipulated that you're going to be working all the time. Because yes. we need to use your intelligence and your talents all the time to do this project. You know, or you can, like you said, you can just decide to die with humanity, or you can, we'll let you go out. As you right, choose. Right, as you choose, right. So I like that they have these psychologists that they have set up to essentially coach people based on their options. And the psychologists have to do it in a way that is non-aggressive, that is very much, you know, understanding of them. I and think, like, they... one of the primary guidelines was, like, you can't reproach them for whatever option right. they yes, choose. Right, yes, of course. And also, I think a lot of it is if they have any objections that they come forward with, here are some ways to phrase... Yes. You know, alternatives, but like not, we, yeah. we We have studied the options. Right. You know, you are, you are free to look at the data right. while you're here. 
but this is literally the option that gives us the best chance of survival. Right. So these these psychologists also have to deal with these people breaking down because this is a lot to take in. Yeah. I mean, you already know that, like, the survival of humanity is at stake. Right. And then you get brought in on the secret project, which you're told is, like, the only chance for humanity's survival. And then when you get there, you're told, no, that's not an option right now. You either can make sure that humanity can eventually be reborn. Or you can die. Or you can die. Uh, So that's like an existential threat. That's an existential crisis. So these psychologists have a lot that they have to work with. So, So that's very interesting, like how they sort of guide people through this orientation process. And then, you know, you sort of get into, like, the various uh, programs. So there's the sort of AI Gaia, who's sort of the main program. And then there's these various subsystems that people are developing in order to try to make sure humanity survives. So there's, like, the Apollo subsystem, I think, Mm -hmm. is the one that's the education one. Yep. Which was interesting to see, like, so in the game, they... It's a diverse cast of people who are brought in to man this project. So it's not all just white people. So the head of the Apollo subsystem development is a Muslim woman. And, you know, she is basically trying to collect as much data as possible. Like she's trying to save languages. She's trying to save history. She's trying to save art and culture. She's trying to save plays. You know, she's trying to save novels. You know, she's just trying to get as much data as possible to stuff into the subsystem. And, you know, there's a point where it's like, well, we finished the language subsystem of Apollo early because a lot of the languages we want to get are already extinct. (laughs) It's like... Uh, Can I comment on that as a linguist? Yeah. That's heartbreaking. And actually, you know, a lot of the languages, so there's thousands of languages in the world, and some of them only have a couple of speakers left. You know, there's many endangered languages right now. And so it just goes to show that, like, we need to work to preserve these things if we want to have access to them in the future. Yeah, I feel like at least one branch of linguistics is sort of based on trying to find these last speakers and trying to at least record yes, preservation, how, yep. how these languages were spoken before the last speakers yes. die off. Right. And that's like, you know, I've, I've heard stories of people who are working with, like, you know, one of the last speakers, one of mm-hmm. the last couple of speakers. And it's like, if that's all you can, like... You just get whatever you can get. Any speech samples that you can get from them, you just get them. Anything's good. So that's, you know, this is a really touching part for me, you know, because I'm an academic and I'm like, you know, we need to save all of this uh, language and culture. Yeah. So, you know, they're developing this AI, essentially, that will, which will eventually crack the code on how to deactivate the feral robots and then will try to terraform Earth to make it capital for humans again and human civilization will and then they have a yeah a way to so i think one of the interesting things is you know there's different approaches to ai Uh, so there's the artificial intelligence that pharaoh you know is like we we want pragmatic we want pragmatic computers ai which will follow orders and execute commands and but does not have any sort of built-in compassion doesn't have any built-in empathy yeah i would like to talk about this part actually if you wouldn't mind go ahead because i felt like you just did like 90 percent of the plot oh okay um no yeah so i wanted to talk about this compassion part because i have some quotes and gaia which is this ai that elizabeth is building with all these subsystems like apollo it's not just a thinking ai and 
there's this dialogue that Aloy has with one of the other characters, mm-hmm. Silence. And maybe after I give the quote, you can tell a little bit more about who he is. So they have this little dialogue, and he tells her, like, you're kind of confusing Will for sentimentality. And Aloy says that Elizabeth knew that it wasn't enough for Gaia just to think. Like, she taught Gaia to feel and to care and to sacrifice and to believe in life, and enough to fight against hopelessness. So if it wasn't for that sentimentality, life would have ended. And I think that this is kind of key in Elizabeth's approach, is that she knows that in order for humanity to be reborn and for this project to be successful, or for Mm -hmm. really any life on Earth to exist, not just humans, for any life to flourish, that Gaia has to have compassion. It's not enough just to be smart. So this is definitely one of the most attractive pieces to the story for me. I think that it is a warning to humankind actually right now as we're building AI because what we do and I think we talked about this in our robots episode what we do with AI right now Mm -hmm. is going to inform our future what's happening in our society right now is informing the AI that will exist that will replace us maybe not everybody believes that but um yeah sorry go ahead no I mean I think teaching Gaia empathy and compassion were sort of important goals that Elizabeth had she also, so there's one more quote I'll share too, and Elizabeth is talking to Gaia, because this yes. was another way that Elizabeth kind of taught Gaia compassion, was to uh, have these heart-to-heart dialogues with Gaia. Yes. And so Gaia's asking Elizabeth about something that her mother told her, and her mother said, Elizabeth, being smart will count for nothing if you don't make the world a better place. You have to use your smarts to count for something, to serve life, not death. This is right after Elizabeth tells the story about how she was really smart and she was creating something and it caused like a tree to collapse or set on fire or something. Do you Mm -hmm. remember this? Vaguely. Okay. See, these are the things that kind of stand out to me were these little moments. And her mom is like trying to show her to reprimand her for this. And by saying like, yeah, it's really cool that you created this thing, but you can't do it and destroy life. Yeah. No, no, I'm self-conscious. I've been talking too much. I just think that you, it was fine. I think it was good because you just went over like all of the different systems. I, or not the different systems, but mostly Apollo. But I think that was good. Okay. It was, it was a little much. Okay. Sorry, I got excited. No, it's good to be excited. It is. It's good. But yeah, so, I mean, do you want to, do you want to say what happens or do you find out like what happened to the world, you know, after sort of Gaia sort of started terraforming it? Oh, with Hades, right? Okay, so there's a subsystem Mm -hmm. uh, that Elizabeth also creates. uh, But at the advice of... Well, I mean, I think she envisioned Hades as being a part of it. But it was sort of this one particular person who was working on the project who kind of took it to another level. Yeah, it was like a kind of a hacker who was really into death metal. He was really into death metal, yeah. And his his job was to create Hades. And the the idea of Hades was, Gaia's not going to be perfect. She's not going to get it right. Right on the first try. So we need a something, a system that can restart Earth again. So that way we can keep trying and we can get it right. So Hades was supposed to be there. So that way, the moment that we notice, okay, like, because for example, Elizabeth mentioned, like, the system could go out of control and the atmosphere could cause like all these sorts of natural disasters and it wouldn't be sustainable for life. Okay, Hades has to come in has to destroy all of that that's been made. Yeah, because what Guy would do is she'd keep on trying to, like, 
correct things. Right. She would keep trying. Yeah. But it would be sort of a cycle of like you right. make a correction. There's unintended consequences, which makes things worse. Right. So the best thing to do would be to wipe the slate right. wipe clean. it out and then just start over. So that was the idea behind Hades. And Hades ends up becoming a little too powerful. Yeah. Specifically, there is a signal that is sent that releases Hades. Hades and Gaia have a fight. Right. Uh, an AI fight. And Hades then proceeds to release all the other subsystems. And Gaia sort of, to prevent Hades from having control over the terraforming systems, Gaia essentially self-destructs the primary facility, taking herself with it. Also, before we get into this part, who is it that destroys Apollo? Did we mention this? Pharaoh. Pharaoh, right. So, yes. So there's a point where... The, the project leads are trapped, are now sort of in the prime facility, the Gaia Prime facility. They're working on improving their subsystems, but essentially they're going to be stuck in this facility for the rest of their lives because Earth is no longer habitable. And Pharaoh, who's in a separate underground structure, because he apparently was rich enough to pull that off, calls in and says, oh, at this point, Elizabeth is dead. She sacrificed herself in order to keep the facility hidden. Pharaoh calls in and is like, I've been thinking, you know, knowledge is a curse. Uh, You know, we don't want to pass this curse on to our children. So I'm going to, I'm going to delete the Apollo subsystem and I'm going to kill you all, uh, which he proceeds to do. Yeah. This was honestly such a hard part of this game for me. Yeah. As somebody who is deeply invested in history and does not think that we do a good enough job of teaching history at right now, when we have access to all this information, the idea of one, one asshole just being like, oh, history, that's just a burden. Let's just get rid of it. Yes. How will you, how will humanity learn? And I think this ties into like, so we get to the end. Yeah. Oh, so oh. before we get yeah. started, there's this tragic moment where you are you go inside the cradle facility one of the cradle facilities which cloned a bunch of humans and you see the nursery area is just trashed like there's coloring all over the wall and you see that there is a classroom section that they just could not access they kept trying to get in and get in tried to get in the the robot caretakers didn't know what to do because the next subsystem which was supposed to take over never activated so basically these they also become these little robot caretakers become kind of abusive towards them not intentionally i mean they weren't programmed to do it but they were prohibited from accessing this so whenever the kids would try to get into the the next system they were kind of like punished punished for doing that and there's eventually the robots are like well we have run out of stored food so we must let these children who are very uneducated like these now like 20 like 18 to 20 year old children who do not have any education past preschool or kindergarten and we just got to let them go into the wild because we no longer have the foodstuffs to keep them healthy right and you see, like, all these scribblings on the wall about, like, how they desperately just want to get to this next session, how they just want to be released. It was just heartbreaking. It is to very walk, heartbreaking. To walk through that area and, like, realize, like, how long they were trapped 20 years. inside a nursery right. for, like, 20 years. And there was nothing they could do about it. Yep. And then they were punished by these AI who also, you know, they didn't know what to do either. Yeah. They're like, this other section is not activating. 
Yeah, so Apollo being wiped out because of Pharaoh was devastating on a number of levels. And so then, okay, so there's the signal, yes. gets sent, they have this fight, and Gaia has this last-minute plan where she's like, maybe I can make a clone of Elizabeth. Of Elizabeth. Because that's the only person that could possibly save us right now. Yes. And Aloy is that clone. And Aloy is that clone. So, wow, that took us a while to get there. Uh, this is a very complex game, but, you know, the plot is so... It's just so worth it. Even yeah. just watching you play through it um, was worth it. And I think I was going to say something else about Hades, but now I lost my train of thought where Hades was. Did you have another comment about Hades? So Hades is the actually the primary antagonist. So using, like, terms of AI, like, Gaia is sort of a general-purpose AI. She does have a specific goal in mind, but she is able to kind of make a leaps of, of logic mm. and is able to sort of... She's able to innovate a little bit. Right, yes, absolutely. The subsystems, however, are all sort of... Very specific. Specific-purpose AI. Like, right. they they have one job, and that is the job they do. So when Hades is released, his only job is to destroy the Earth and nothing else. So that's why Gaia and him have their AI fight. So eventually you end up stopping Hades from reactivating the Pharaoh robots. But I think sort of the the big question that the game leaves us with, and there's like a end credits stinger, which sort of hammers us home, which is uh, who sent the signal? Right. Because as far as we know, as far as we've been told, there is literally nobody else. There's no other artificial intelligence. As far as we know right now. There's no other artificial intelligence. There's no other human civilization. As far as we know, like, the only people who are alive on the planet are the clones, uh, the descendants of the clones that were gestated in these cradle facilities. So there's this big sort of question about, like, who sent the signal that freed Hades? Because that sort of started this chain reaction of events. Right. And I have a couple of theories, and I hope the audience will indulge me as I posit on these theories go on what are your theories so theory number one it's pharaoh that's my theory yes so we know pharaoh had his own private facility made where he got to i guess be god emperor of his own bunker god i hate him and we do know that they have the technology to clone people right so it is entirely possible that pharaoh just kept on cloning himself and educating his younger self and he was already kind of a narcissistic asshole to begin with, and that just sort of curdling over however many hundreds of years take place between the end of civilization and modern day and the modern day set in the game, that could only have gotten worse. So it might be Pharaoh. The other possibility, they do mention that there is another plan. That plan being, we're going to send a generation ship out of the solar system. And it's reported that that generation ship blew up on the edge of the solar system. However, the, the company that ran the ship did the reporting, so I don't think anybody else outside that company actually was like looking at the ship through a telescope. So I think there's still the possibility of there being another group of humans essentially coming in from another solar system. Right. I'm not quite sure why they would want to destroy Earth. Right. So I think Pharaoh is still like... Pharaoh is still my top theory. Pharaoh is still, like, my top suspect for, like, crazy evil guy. Yeah. Oh, he's, he's like, the epitome of, like, I don't know. Narcissism? Don't... Narcissism, and also, like, he's a cis-het-white, well, as far as we're concerned, yeah. cis-het-white 
man, yeah. right? And so it's kind of like, I really felt like this was a lot of a large commentary on like greed and corruption and capitalism and militarism and what it does to a person. Uh, I mean, it, the military industrial complex is literally the cause of the end of the world. Right. So this uh, is this is things that could happen. And I, I think it's also telling that Pharaoh's first reaction was first like to cover it up what was happening. Right. There was there was maybe a point like right at the beginning where if humanity had acted fast enough, they could have just like nuked right the robots and. That would have been the end of that. It would have been bad to have to set off the nukes to begin with. Right. But at the, least the robots would have been killed. Yes. But Pharaoh's first instinct is to cover things up. And it's only when the problem has expanded past that point of no return where he's like, all right, I can't think of any solution. I'm going to turn to Elizabeth to try to have her fix my problem. Because he still, he still doesn't see it as like, he only sees the problem as in terms of it affecting him. Right. Like, his reputation, his right, company's absolutely. finances, he he only sees the problem as it affects him. And he brings Elizabeth in to just fix their programming so the robots will go back to following orders. And Elizabeth basically, like, takes one look at the data and is like, we have much bigger problems than your company. Right. Yeah, so I think I just wanted to add my last little thoughts mm -hmm. now. But, yeah, you're definitely right. He is narcissistic. And overall, I mean, I think the game does a good job of showing a post-apocalyptic world that is not totally tragedy. Yes. That has some hope. It has some inspiration. Um, it's colorful for the most part. And we do, you know, we see tragedy, but we also see a lot of hope. And something else I really like about the game, you know, we talked about the graphics being gorgeous, but... The water is beautiful. Okay. I love video game water. Okay. It is totally a thing for me. And the way that you... I could just stand there near like this little stream in the game like all day. Yeah. If only robots weren't trying to kill me. Yes. But yeah, so that's been... You had some good... It's one of my favorite parts. Good liquid dynamics oh, rendering technology. So good. So yeah, that's my final thought on this all right no no final thoughts on daddy rost and... Oof, daddy rost uh... need me some daddy rost <laughs> we hope that this has inspired you to check out the game if you haven't already or if you have checked out the game uh, to think about the think game, about the game a little bit more perhaps new and different ways and we invite you to email us or contact us tweet us to tell us your thoughts on this episode. Share with your friends if you think anybody would be interested in this podcast. And also, if you would like to support this podcast, you can tip us at the link at the bottom of the show notes. If you're uh, getting this from Spotify or Stitcher or wherever you're seeing this, there should be a link and you can tip us. Um, yes. That would be appreciated because we do this all uh, yes. totally, you know, on our own time for free. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. This is M. This is G. Don't be afraid to love how you love. Love what you love. And love who you love. 
If you'd like to get in touch with either M or myself, you can tweet us at KMP Podcast. You can find us at kmppodcast.tumblr.com, or you can email us at kinky.nerdy.poly at gmail.com. Yeah, so, you know, I'm also doing some internet marketing. Um, Very nice, capitalizing on that those tweets. Yeah, those those sweet sweet tweets. Ooh. Those those dank memes. Dank memes. Those. I saw this meme that was like, "Sorry, Edge Lord, but kind kindness is the dankest of memes." <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, yeah, kindness is the dankest of memes.